You're going to love this. Just love it. I agree. Pacifica Radios, KPFK in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast. As heard on 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast. And, of course, coast-to-coast and around the globe on kpfk.org, on the Stitcher app, the TuneIn app, the iTunes app, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and Radio Sputnik, five days a week. Yes, you can run, but you can't hide. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another action-packed, thrilling adventure on the Bradcast. And I am happy to announce today, as far as I know, unless something changes over the next hour, this will be a Trump-free broadcast today. What? what? Yeah, I know, I That's know. That's not possible. I know, I know. You're either disappointed or delighted by that news. Uh, I think way, I'm both, actually. You are? <laughs> All right, well, you're welcome. Uh, that is, of course, Desi Doyen, our producer, my co-host on the Green News Report. Uh, of course, if you want, if you want way more Trump than anyone could ever or should ever want, uh, you can download yesterday's broadcast because we had uh, more than enough Trump to last an entire uh, primary season, frankly. Uh, but warning, if you download uh, that uh, broadcast from yesterday, you're going to need to take a lot of showers afterwards. I- I've been showering ever since, to be frank. And they're actually, you know what, Des, there is some uh, some Donald Trump news today, but I'm not going to cover it. Because it's even more disgusting than yesterday's Donald Trump news. Yeah, so I'm not even going to go there. Maybe on tomorrow's show, though. Uh, Yes, we are uh, five days a week. If you ever miss any uh, of the broadcasts, you can always download them at the kpfk.org archives or at bradblog.com or over at iTunes, where I hope you'll give us a good review, make it easier for other people to find the show as well. All right, coming up... uh, my in-depth interview with Dr. Michael Mann, climate scientist, been talking about this all week, a creator of the infamous hockey stick graph that showed uh, temperatures rising along with carbon dioxide over the past hundred years after every both carbon dioxide and temperatures had pretty much been, oh, flat for the last, oh, 800 to 10,000 years. Um In any case, I'm going to be talking to him about this new startling, uh, really bombshell of a report, as some in the media have described it, from NASA's former chief scientist, Dr. James Hansen, warning that new data suggests 10 meter sea level rise 
Or ten, feet. ten feet. Thank ten you. Ten feet. Ten feet sea level. Oh, well, now it's only ten feet sea level rise. Yeah, What's the worry? Uh, ten feet sea level rise could occur as early as just a few decades from now. Uh, 50 years from now. Uh, or actually, not even 50 years from now. By 2050. Given the rate of ice melt now being measured in Antarctica and Greenland and uh, the the feedback loop that occurs because of the way the ice is now melting in Antarctica and Greenland. So we'll be talking about that disturbing new report and all of the politics that are attached to it, particularly as these 2016 candidates are this year finally being forced to talk about climate, unlike uh, back in 2012. Uh, when it never even came up, never uh, people, American people aren't interested in it. Uh, so we'll be talking about that with uh, Dr. Michael Mann and, and also how he himself uh, found himself in the middle of this political brouhaha as uh, denialists turn their guns on him because he bothered to, you know, detail the science. So they uh, they were and are busy attacking the messengers, it seems, when it comes to this. When it comes to climate science. So we'll be talking about all of that and more with Michael Mann in a bit. Uh, last week on uh, on this program, um, oh, we've, we've had a lot of great shows over the past week. But uh, in particular, uh, you you may recall the, the charges were filed. I think it was 33 charges were uh, filed against the South Carolina shooter at the AME uh, church in in Charleston. Uh, against the man who killed nine African-American parishioners. He kept one alive reportedly so that she could tell the world what had happened here in his efforts to start a race war, to trigger a war. Exactly what ISIS and al-Qaeda are supposedly trying to do with their attacks. It seemed to me at the time a clear case of terrorism, but in the case of the South Carolina shooter... He was charged only with hate crimes, not crimes related to terrorism, oddly enough. I was confused by that, so I wanted to learn what, what the hell the difference was between hate crimes and, and terror, crimes of terror. Uh, so we had uh, a former FBI special agent uh, turned 9-11 whistleblower turned Time Magazine's 2002 Person of the Year Colleen Raleigh joined us on uh, on the show a few days ago to explain the difference, or at least to try to explain the difference between hate crimes and crimes of terror, which, as it turns out, are not very clear at all. It's as if they're making it up as as they go along. Here's uh, here's one of the points she made on on uh, the broadcast last week. I'm not sure that there is a lot of light to be shed. I think it's uh, clear as mud. There are subjective, uh, certainly, uh, motives for categorizing different crimes in different ways. Um, but these crimes, even material support of terrorism, which is an actual crime, uh, did not get its start until, I think, 1996. And it didn't get its real start until after the Patriot Act, when it was more broadly defined. And so I think the Department of Justice uh, and other authorities are really floundering. Hate crimes... What distinguishes, for instance, a hate crime and uh, terrorism is very thin. They really overlap to some extent because what you're talking about is the intent of the person who does the act. And even when hate crimes kind of had its heyday of discussion when this goes back a, a, a couple of decades, actually, but, you know, when they started to charge the burning of crosses in yards 
And people said at the time, no, that's free speech. Why are you adding to the penalty of a crime? Uh, if you murder someone, the argument was, of course, if you murder somebody, what's the difference between murdering them and hating them at the same time and just plain murdering them? And so there was a lot of discussion about the fact that it was only the intent. If you realize that intents are notoriously difficult, except in the case of Dylan Roth, as you said, the case of Dylan Roth is probably the clearest case for knowing that the intent, his intent was, was really to terrorize and was to uh, start a race war. So uh, it was clear in this case uh, that he was trying to start a race war, as uh, that was Colleen Raleigh, uh, former FBI special agent, 9-11 whistleblower, Time Magazine Person of the Year, is saying that this whole thing is really clear as mud. And the reason that I was confused about it was not just because of the charge that were brought against uh, Dylan Roth up there in uh, Roth up there in uh, uh, in South Carolina, but after the uh, the shootings at the uh, uh, Marine recruiting stations in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And uh, those were immediately uh, described as uh, uh, being investigated as terrorism. Well, in that case, you had uh, a guy with a, a Middle Eastern background going after uh, Marines. And so I guess that made sense. But if that was terrorism, why wasn't what he did at this movie theater? I'm sorry, at this church in uh, I haven't even got to the movie theater shooting. Never mind that. Uh, why wasn't it uh, when you had a racist, a, a white guy, clearly trying to start a race war uh, by shooting African-Americans at a church? Why was that not terror? So it's all really, really unclear, and it seems to be largely used as propaganda. And uh, Colleen Raleigh explained also on the same show that when the definition of, of, uh, of, of terrorism was changed in the Patriot Act, she saw problems at the time. And she mentioned something while she was talking to me that I want to follow up on a little bit today. Uh, here was her talking about her experience in the FBI when these new statutes uh, had just been written. I also recall challenging uh, the definition of domestic terrorism that was put into the Patriot Act it includes uh, an act of violence to, to human beings. And I remember raising my hand a lot of times because these cases that they were opening were not actually predicated upon violent acts to human beings. They were predicated maybe on property damage. So if you're, if you're a, you know, a group and you go out and put graffiti on a bridge or something like that, that should not have constituted, even under the definition of domestic terrorism in the Patriot Act, it should not have constituted domestic terrorism. And yet, uh, letting, uh, letting animals go, the animal liberation type things, these things were not acts dangerous to human life. And I could never get a straight answer. I would raise my hand and ask those questions and say, well, you know, if you're going to investigate the mink farms, etc., shouldn't that definition then also include property damage, etc.? And they would never, they just kind of shrugged. The definitions, they have a propaganda value. But they are not clear, and they're not good for purposes of law enforcement at all. And in fact, uh, I think that's all they are serving now is propaganda. In fact, uh, it, it does seem to be the case where it is propaganda. She went on to say that uh, a poor man's war is terrorism. A rich man's terrorism is war. Uh, I think that was a good point. But uh, the point that she made there, uh, she, she talked about uh, animal, uh, animal rights activists 
uh, and that they are often targeted for terrorism. She mentioned the mink farms, and we didn't have time to get into it at that point. But the very next day, the very next day after that interview, the AP reports this. Two animal rights activists have been charged with terrorizing the fur industry during cross-country road trips in which they released about 5,740 mink from farms and vandalized the homes and businesses of industry members, the FBI said. The FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force arrested Joseph Brian Budenberg, 31, and Nicole Juanita Kissane, 28, both of Oakland, California, and federal prosecutors charged them with conspiracy to violate the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. Apparently there is an Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. The uh, the indictment was unsealed. It was a grand jury indictment unsealed that said the two had caused hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages during 40,000 miles of cross-country trips over the summer and into the fall of 2013. They allegedly snuck into farms in Idaho, Iowa, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and freed mink and destroyed breeding records. In one case, they released a bobcat from a farm in Montana, according to the FBI. Uh, and they carried out what was clearly a vandalism, uh, if they did it, allegedly slashed uh, vehicle tires, glued business locks, uh, smashed windows, and so forth. Uh, if convicted, they each face a maximum of 10 years in prison and $250,000 fine. But what, you know, so what's interesting to me here is that they seem to have very clear statutes when it comes to terrorism, if it's animal rights. If releasing mink, mind you, nobody was killed here. Nobody was even harmed or injured. This was vandalism. I could understand them being charged with vandalism, and I guess I could understand them being charged with, uh, I don't know, what is it, Desi? A theft, perhaps? A uh, property releasing? crime, yeah. Well, the, 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 the theft the property, of the animal property. But the animals, yeah. yeah uh, you know, I, I could see that. But no, in this case, it was theft. When you've got a guy who clearly targets people, human beings, uh, that's only terrorism, apparently, if the guy has a Middle Eastern uh, name. You know, this has been something we've talked about on the show for years at this point. Back in 2009, when they came out with the uh, report, the government came out with a report warning about right wing domestic terrorism. The right wing threw a hissy fit and uh, got the Barack Obama administration to pull back that report to the Obama administration's eternal shame, frankly, because not only did they pull back the report, but uh, they also disbanded the unit that had been working at the time on domestic terror incidents. So when it comes to domestic terror incidents, if it's a right wing domestic terror, apparently that doesn't exist. It's only terror if it's Middle Easterners or if it's animal rights activists, then it's terror. Then the definitions apparently are very, very clear. This is just absolutely uh, crazy. But I wanted to get into that. I wanted to mention that because when uh, Colin Rowley had mentioned uh, minks, we didn't get to go into what she was talking about. Apparently, this is what she was talking about. Free the minks. Throw the terrorists in jail, apparently. All right, a quick break, and we're going to come back with Dr. Michael Mann on this startling new climate change report that really you won't hear in detail like this anywhere else. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Please don't touch that dial. <laughs> 
Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Science is real from the Big Bang to DNA. Science is real from evolution to the Milky Way. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Science is real. Yeah. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, well, you know, we cover climate change a lot on this program because, frankly, it is the most existential threat this planet faces, no matter what the uh, Republicans uh, running to try to con their followers might be telling them. Uh, if we can't survive the planet, if the, you know, if we can't live here anymore, neither can ISIS. Just a thought. Now, uh, I have long held in looking at what the International um, Panel on uh, inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, their studies. I have looked at those studies, and to me, it always seems they are being incredibly conservative, which frankly is the opposite of what uh, so many of their critics say that, you know, they're alarmists and everything else. I think if you take a look at what the IPCC is saying about the planet, about climate change, I think we're in a lot worse shape than many people are willing to talk about out loud. And now uh, a bit of uh, evidence has come out uh, in the past week to sort of support that idea. Uh, this is over at uh, over at Slate, Eric Holthouse, a uh, meteorolo meteorologist who uh, writes about weather and climate for them, says, In what may prove to be a turning point for political action on climate change, a breathtaking new study casts extreme doubt about the near-term stability of global sea levels. The study, written by James Hansen, NASA's former uh, lead climate scientist and 16 co-authors, many of whom are considered among the top in their fields, concludes that glaciers in Gr Greenland and Antarctica will melt 10 times faster than previous consensus estimates, resulting in sea level rise of at least 10 feet in as little as 50 years. Hansen, who is known for being alarmist and also right, according to Eric Holdhouse, acknowledges that his study implies change far beyond previous consensus estimates. In a conference call with reporters, Hansen said he hopes the new findings would be, quote, substantially more persuasive than anything else previously published. Holdhouse adds, I certainly find them to be. He writes that Hansen's study does not attempt to predict the pre precise timing of the feedback loop, only that it is likely to occur this century. The implications, says Holthouse, are mind-boggling. In the study's likely scenario, New York City and every other coastal city on the planet may only have a few more decades of habitability left. That dire prediction, in Hansen's view, requires, quote, emergency cooperation 
among nations. One more point I want to get to before I bring on my guest. Uh, Over at uh, Climate Progress, Joe Rome, a a physicist over there, writes, James Hansen and 16 lead climate experts have written a must-read discussion paper on what humanity risks if it can't keep total global warming below 2 degrees centigrade. The greatest risk they identify is that multi-meter sea level rise would become practically unavoidable. This is a warning everyone should heed, not because, not just because Hansen's co-authors include some of the world's top sea level rise experts, but also given Hansen's prescience on climate change dating back more than three decades. In 1981, Hansen led a team of NASA scientists in a seminal, artic- seminal article in Science called Climate Impact of Increasing Atmospheric Carbon Dioxide. Now, remember, this was 1981. They warned in that article in Science, quote, potential effects on climate in the 21st century include the creation of drought-prone regions in North America and Central Asia as part of a shifting of climatic zones, erosion of the West Antarctic ice sheet with a consequent worldwide rise in sea level and opening of the fabled Northwest Passage. Wow, writes Joe Rome, a 35-year-old peer-reviewed climate warning that is 100% dead on. Is there anyone else on the planet who has been so right for so long about climate change? That was Joe Rome at Climate Progress. Well, someone else who has been uh, right for quite a while is Michael E. Mann, Distinguished Professor and Director of the Earth uh, Earth System Science Center at the Pennsylvania State University. He's author of more than 160 peer-reviewed and edited publications, as well as the book The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars. That's right. If you've heard of the climate stick, uh, the hockey stick, if you've seen uh, Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, which I haven't, uh, a lot of references to this very controversial graph showing the rise of carbon dioxide along with the rise of temperature over the past uh, 50 or 100 years versus the hundreds and thousands of years beforehand uh, when everything stayed, stayed stable. Dr. Mann received undergraduate degrees in physics and applied math from University of California at Berkeley, master's degree in physics, as well as a Ph.D. in geology and geophysics from Yale University. But who hasn't? He also contributed with other IPCC authors to the award of the 2007 Nobel Prize. Dr. Michael Mann, sir, welcome back to the broadcast. Thanks, Brad. It's always, uh, it's always great to be with you. Great to have you here, my friend. All right, but I, I've got a bit of a bone to pick with you. I had you on, I think it was late last year was the last time I had you on, and I was worried there was, a, I can't remember which study it was, uh, I guess it was probably the IPCC report that came out. I was worried that it was much worse than uh, scientists were really uh, telling us at the time, and ironically enough, you made me feel better. You made me feel like we could solve this thing. So I went away into the new year feeling better. And now here comes James Hansen's report just to ruin my day. And so, uh, Dr. Mann, what have you done? Uh, actually, before we get to all of that, tell, tell me, uh, what does this study say? I want to get into because there's controversy about this paper itself, the way it was released uh, and so forth. But first, just explain in human being terms, uh, what does this study say? What does this study warn about? Well, to me, the most compelling aspect of the study is the evidence that it provides that, indeed, we could see far more melting of the Greenland ice sheet and, in particular, the West Antarctic ice sheet 
than scientists have tended to to, to conclude in the past, mm-hmm. um, and that includes the I, the recent IPCC report, other scientific assessments. They have, as you say, been rather conservative. The, mm-hmm. the whole process of scientific assessment is a conservative process because when you get you know a hundred scientists in a room, what you're going to come out of there with is the lowest common denominator, the the least controversial thing that you can get all those scientists to agree upon. Mm -hmm. And so by their nature, these assessment reports tend to be conservative. And there are a number of studies that show that if you look at past IPCC assessments and you look at what's happened since, uh, invariably, uh, the the warming, the rate of loss of um, ice, um, a, a whole range of measures uh, that you can look at, climate change is proceeding faster, and it's larger in magnitude than what the IPCC reported. And that's been true at every juncture. Uh, we have tended to underestimate mm-hmm. um, the, the rate and magnitude of the changes. And so, in, in a sense, it's no different here. What, what Hansen has shown is that, indeed, there is you know, reason to at least suspect the possibility of a worst-case scenario that's a lot worse than anything that the IPCC really talks about. Um, now, there's nothing earth-shattering in terms of the evidence um, that, uh, you know, Hansen provides. But what he's done is he's sort of synthesized uh, various lines of evidence, and he's put together a pretty compelling picture here of what, you know, what a worst-case scenario might look like, and it's not pretty. And so you're right, you could easily come away from this latest report being rather depressed. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, there, there are sort of conflicting things happening right now when it comes to the climate change uh, issue and the climate change debate. Yes, the evidence is coming in saying that things could be a whole lot worse um, if we don't act on the problem in time. Um, there's a greater urgency to act in uh, you know to action now mm-hmm. than there's ever been before because in order to avoid that sort of 2 degree celsius 3 and a half degree fahrenheit dangerous warming of the planet we have to act now we we have to basically peak our emissions our carbon emissions bring them down fairly dramatically we really have to very swiftly pursue a transition to a clean energy economy. It seems, and, and we've got to get started now. Yeah, and it seems to me we need to bring them down, and we need to bring them down a lot faster, frankly, than uh, it, it seems the IPCC is warning us, uh, at least based on you know the papers that I read, the scientists I yep. talk to. Uh, That's right. I, I, I think they're, they're making almost a best-case scenario at the IPCC. But, but looking at... Well, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, no, any thoughts on that? Well, yeah. I mean, if you look, if we had acted um, when we already knew that there was a potential problem, and that dates at least back to the Hansen 1988 mm-hmm. uh, article that you mentioned, mm-hmm. if we had acted then, then the emissions curve it would be a bunny slope. Yeah. You know, if you're a skier, we'd be talking about a pretty gradual, smooth transition. It wouldn't be very hard to do. It wouldn't be very expensive. Instead, what several decades of delay have bought us is that we now face the black double diamond slope. Oh, that, that's what we're confronting now. And so those reductions have to be a whole lot more rapid, and it's going to cost more because it's more expensive to undergo a, a, a you know, fundamental uh, transition in the mm-hmm. global energy economy 
um, if, if you have to do it over a time frame of, you know, a decade <laughs> or two decades. And so there has been a huge procrastination penalty, as some call it, um, mm. a huge cost of delay. But you know what? The cost of not acting would be so much more that even though it's more, going to be more expensive to do now, it's you know, deferred maintenance. If we had acted earlier, it would have been cheaper, but it'll be a whole lot more expensive um, if we don't act. Uh, and so the good news here is there is still time, and there are a lot of positive signals going into this, uh, this summit in Paris, this climate summit later this year in Paris. There are a lot of um, you know, things that you can look at to be cautiously optimistic that we might really see some progress. Um, that, that's the reason for cautious optimism. Well, see, there there you go again. You and your uh, your good news that you're always looking for, uh, Dr. Michael Mann. Uh, the, the costs, uh, and I do want to get back to some specifics on the study, but yeah, I, I mean, the costs are increasing all the time, and we had, we talked a little bit about on this show last week. I know it's a small... Uh, I mean, it's an absolutely infinitesimal, uh, tiny uh, sampling here of what happened. But uh, it, it was my birthday a week or two ago. We were thinking about going out of town. We were thinking about going up to uh, Las Vegas from here in, uh, in, in uh, Los Angeles. And exactly at the time that we would have uh, been going through this particular uh, uh, stretch of highway, the highway caught fire because of the drought out here. There, the, the highway actually, the, 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 uh, uh, a wildfire actually jumped the highway, burned up about 20 or 30 cars. That was going to Vegas. The other choice was, oh, let's go out to Phoenix for the weekend. And at almost exactly the time we would have come back, the highway from Phoenix collapsed and shut down because of the because uh, of the rainstorm this this deluge that came in from hurricane dolores so it was like and that uh, highway is now major interstate is now shut down two tiny examples uh but you know how our climate is beginning to be affected and how it is going to be very costly you know when you shut out the only route between here and between la and vegas or the only route between la and phoenix uh those are small examples but uh, tiny examples, but I think underscore how horrible this could be. Now, in this yep. in this new study, uh, uh, James Hansen talks about the doubling time for ice loss from West Antarctica. And uh, Michael, you say there's not really any new evidence, so to speak, here, but it's really a new analysis, uh, as I understand yep. this, of what's going on. W what does this new doubling time? that they see concerning the ice loss from West Antarctica. What does that mean exactly, yeah. and, and how does that affect us, potentially? So what Hansen and, and colleagues have done is to look at the ice melt uh, problem slightly differently. We tend to sort of look at it as, well, you know, there's a certain rate at which ice is melting, mm -hmm. and there's almost sort of a linear thinking, oh, well, we can just sort of extrapolate that forward. Uh, uh, you the, know, more, uh, the more ice a melts? Linear the, yeah, as, the more ice melts, the higher the, the sea rise gets because the yeah, ice turns sort of, to water. Yeah, and it's just sort of a, a linear slope, mm -hmm. right? What Hansen colleagues have said is, well, no, you know, we don't think that that's the way the physics uh, work here. Um, it's geometric. It's exponential. And so what's really happening, they're saying, is that the, the slope is getting larger and larger over time. There's acceleration. The rate itself is increasing over time. And so it is the veritable tip of the iceberg that we are going to see exponentially more and more melt over time. And what they do is, looking at the data that way, 
they look at what possible time constants. You know, mm-hmm. for how long does it take to double the amount of melt? Uh-huh. Um, that's 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 the way they're framing the problem. And there's you know a fair amount of uncertainty when you do that. It's what I referred to in one commentary as an extrapolation error. Anytime you sort of try to do that extrapolation of an mm-hmm. exponential curve, um, you're going to get a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of room for error. That having been said. Um, you know, they may ultimately be correct that this is the way to think about it. And if we do get uh, an exponential increase in uh, melt, and we've, what we've seen is, again, the tip of the iceberg, that we're going to go up that exponential ramp, um, then we're talking about a whole lot more melt over a time scale of 50 to 100 years than most scientists working in this field have been talking about. And that means a whole lot more sea level rise. Uh, and, you know, the thing is, you know, we may now, there's re- believe it or not, it's relatively uncontroversial, and this gives you an idea of um, the level of concern that the scientific community now has here. It's no longer controversial that we have probably committed to at least 10 uh, feet of sea level rise. That's baked in. You know, if you talk to even the most conservative scientists who work in this area, um, there have been a number of studies that basically say we, we put a, enough warming into the southern oceans, they're going to, going to erode the ice shelves that help keep the inland ice, of the Antarctic ice sheet, um, uh, they help keep it um, you know, on land um, as those ice shelves are melted and destabilized. Um, we will probably lose the majority of this big vulnerable chunk of the ice sheet called the West Antarctic Ice Sheet. Um, and that, that gives us at least 10 feet. So that's probably baked in. So uh, when, just to when, finish the point, uh, one when, last point here. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay. go ahead, sure. I was just going to say that um, if that were to take 1,000 years, yeah. hey, we could adapt to that, okay? If it takes 100 years, it's going to be a whole lot tougher. Move New York City, move Miami on a time frame of 100 years. If it's 50 years, as Hansen and, and colleagues are saying, well, then it's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, it is, and you kind of ran a chill down my spine when you said baked in the cake. And for, for people who may not understand that, what you're saying is that no matter what we do, no matter how much we decrease emissions at this point, scientists feel the, the and, and I don't know if this is the consensus here. Well, you say it's the consensus. Scientists feel that no matter what we do, we are now looking at a 10-foot Sea level rise. Did I understand? That's a sobering that? fact. That yeah, that is the cons- that is the conservative consensus now. Um, and what Hansen is saying is, yeah, that 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 you know, it's the same amount you know mm-hmm. that we've probably committed to to uh, ten feet of sea level rise. If you know, if you talk to the more conservative scientists, the thinking has been, well, you know, but that'll take five hundred years to play out. What Hansen is saying, no, no, no. That'll take 50 years to play out. Now, that is at the upper, you know, that, that is certainly he is mm-hmm. out in front. He is way sort of in the extreme um, in the community as to how quickly he's saying that this could unfold. But he's putting this out there as a, as a viable worst-case scenario. And I would say he's make, made a compelling case that it is, at the very least, a viable uh, worst case and, and he's been right. And that's one of the reasons why right. in the introduction I, I took so much time to go back to what he was predicting 35 years ago and how it has all happened pretty much on the money from when he said it would. And so now when he yep. says this, uh, you know, you got to pay attention. It's not just some outlier who's warning, oh, here's a potential worst case scenario. Keep your eyes on it. 
this is the guy who's been right for uh, 30, 40 years. He's That's got right. the, you know, the, the, the top experts in this particular field working with him on this. And the paper writes, if the ocean continues to accumulate heat and increase melting of marine terminating ice shelves of Antarctica and Greenland, a point will be reached at which it will be impossible to avoid large-scale ice sheet disintegration with sea level rise of at least several meters. I mean, yeah. this is—is is this the feedback when we talk about uh, this? What he's finding in this study is this the the feedback loops we hear about? In other words, what he's saying is that. The more uh, ice that melts, the faster that ice melt itself will cause other ice to melt. Is, yeah. is that essentially that's it? The, yeah, and that's why we, you know, we're talking about an exponential curve or a geometric progression. Mm -hmm. um, it builds on itself. Once you get this going, it's mm -hmm. a process that once you get it going, it's hard to stop. And you know, if you talk to um, uh, scientists, we'll use... Um, sort of uh, wonky words like nonlinearities and thresholds or tipping points. Uh, but the bottom line is uh, these are processes that are sort of unwieldy, <laughs> um, and, but mathematically and scientifically. Um, once something gets going, it builds on itself. It's hard to, to stop it. It's a vicious cycle, if you like. It's positive feedback, as you were referring to. Um, but the bottom line is that um, once, once it gets going, it's hard to stop. And that's really what creates you know, the urgency, both in, you know, in mm -hmm. Hansen's admonition, uh, but if you talk to most scientists in this field, uh, there's a growing sense of urgency in, because of the, you know, the, the fact that these processes, um, there are these very uh, large positive feedbacks, there are these vicious cycles, and in some cases, there are amplifying feedbacks that we haven't even discovered yet, um, and that's one of the real worries. Uh, when you start getting, um, you know, ta talking about issues of uh, methane that is trapped in the permafrost, and methane is a very potent greenhouse gas itself. If that's destabilized and makes it into the atmosphere, mm -hmm. then we get even more warming. As we go on uh, and we uh, sort of begin to... Uh, begin to resolve some of the uncertainties that existed in the past, what we're finding is that uncertainty is not our friend. You know, the critics will say, oh, well, you know, the science is uncertain, so we shouldn't act. But the historical pattern here is that as we resolve these uncertainties, things are actually looking, in many respects, worse and worse. Uncertainty, it mm -hmm. turns out, was a reason to act even faster. That's my concern. That, frankly, has always been my concern and these guys are clearly not acting fast enough, even the ones who aren't deniers. I want to take a quick break and we'll come back with Michael Mann and talk about the politics of all of this as we head into 2016, where these candidates are and where Michael Mann is as he is still at the center of this mess. What with his controversial hockey stick graph and all of that. We'll be back with Michael Mann. Uh, Pennsylvania State University. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Stay tuned. But if you close your eyes. Does it almost feel 
I've been here before. And I'm trying. I'm trying to be an optimist about this. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I'm speaking with Michael Mann, Dr. Michael Mann, Distinguished Professor and Director of the Earth System Science Center at Pennsylvania State University. He's also the author of The Hockey Stick and The Climate Wars, among many other uh, important uh, books and peer-reviewed papers. Uh, uh, before the break, we were talking about this disturbing new study from James Hansen, finding that uh, sea level rise could happen much, much quicker than scientists have expected up to now. And, you know, you mentioned, uh, Michael Mann, you mentioned uh, Miami. Bye-bye Miami. Uh, Bye-bye New York. We're in the middle of a presidential race where we've got uh, not one but two candidates from Florida, Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, both of them essentially uh, climate deniers. Uh, Jeb Bush perhaps uh, somewhat less, but uh, he's still a denier in that he's, sort of denying the science, saying ah, nobody really knows how much right. is caused by man, how much we can do about it. I know you have yeah. uh, spent a long time staying out of the politics, and now you find yourself straight in the politics uh, w- with the hockey stick graph and everything else. W- w- what do you think when you hear someone like uh, a Jeb Bush or a Marco Rubio uh, you know, dealing yeah. with the science the way they're dealing with it? Yeah, and, and you're right. You know, I, I didn't come to politics, but politics came to me. Exactly, uh, yeah. W- when we published the hockey stick curve, um, you know, well over a decade ago, uh, suddenly I found myself in the center of the larger debate over climate change. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I, if you don't like the science, like if you don't <laughs> like the science, blame the scientists. That seems well, that, to be what right. they're uh, what they're getting at with that. Right, that's right. I yeah. mean, the hockey stick became a target, and I became a target. And mm-hmm. in a sense, I've grown to embrace that because it's given me an opportunity to to be part of the larger discussion. Mm -hmm. And I feel that, um, you know, there's nothing more important uh, that we can be doing right now than informing this discussion over, as you said, (laughs) what might be the the most fundamental existential challenge Mm -hmm. that that we faced as a civilization. Um, And so, yeah, so whether I like it or not, um, you know, the the, the politics, you know, uh, I uh, have found myself in the center of the larger, you know, fractious political um, uh, debate and um, and I follow the, the the discussion quite closely mm-hmm. and you are correct. Um, unfortunately, when you look at the Republican candidates for president, um, uh, nearly all of them have made statements that at the very uh, best minimize the the threat of climate change. Uh, Jeb Bush is sort of what uh, some would call a soft denier. He's not out there saying that climate change is a hoax and that uh, the globe is cooling and all these other nonsensical claims that you hear out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, he, but he is sort of playing up the sense that there's, uh, there's uncertainty when there really isn't. On these basic issues, there isn't. And, and that's been the agenda of uh, sort of climate change denialism. In the end, the one bottom line um, you know, even though you, you talk to different climate change uh, deniers or critics or contrarians, um, and generally they actually don't agree with each other very much. They, they have different thing, different claims that they, um, sort of different pet peeves when mm-hmm. it comes to the science of climate change, and they're all singing a different tune, except in the end, remarkably enough, the one thing they all agree upon is that the science is at least too uncertain to act on. And, of course, that's all the special interests that are keeping this debate alive need. They don't need to prevail. 
They don't need to prove that the globe isn't warming. They don't need to prove uh, their case, and of course they can't because they're on the wrong side of the science. All they need to do is to manufacture the sense that there is a debate. Uh, and there's been you know, a lot of polling, a lot of focus group um, you know, uh, analyses that have shown that that's, if you want to block action on something like you know, uh, limiting carbon emissions and dealing with climate change, all you need is to divide the public. Uh, you don't need to, to, to win the argument. Mm. You just need to create a debate. And that's what they've done through you know, tens of millions of dollars, the Koch brothers, fossil fuel interests. They've literally poisoned the public discourse. And they've made it a litmus test for the Republican Party so that it isn't coincidental that all of the Republican candidates are in one way or another minimizing the threat of climate change because that's the only way that you are going to get the nomination when you know, it amounts to a coronation by the, the Koch brothers. Um, you have to be singing their tune, and they are the largest privately held fossil fuel interest in the world. So it's not surprising that they have used their power and influence to basically try to purify uh, the Republican Party with respect to denialism, climate change denialism. Wait, you're saying that they are the largest private uh, uh, fossil fuel producer in the world and the largest uh, uh, contributor pretty much right. to the Republican Party. And we have that wild coincidence that every uh, Republican <laughs> candidate running for office is some, in some fashion a climate change denier? I can't believe it. Uh, the, Reciting uh, literally the talking yeah, points yeah. of the memos that are produced by Koch uh, Industries, Koch Brothers uh, front groups. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and uh, Desi Doyen, my uh, co-host on the uh, Green News Report here, our producer here, uh, I think she said it uh, best about Jeb Bush that uh, he doesn't deny the science. He just denies that we should do anything about it. That's right. That's and kind that's of all they need. Yep. Yeah. That's all they need. Uh, the uh, in the minute or two we have left here, uh, Mike. The um, there there is you know there is actually healthy debate among scientists because I I see it I hear it all the time. It's not about the big picture that uh, guys like Jeb Bush and and so forth are denying, but it's about you know uh, what to do about it, how bad it will be, and right. so on and so forth. And I think this new James Hansen study kind of underscores that because Absolutely. they put this out in a very different way. They put this report out in in a, in a different way, and there is some debate about this report. Even uh, you were actually critical of it in in some respects, as quoted by Chris Mooney a over few the Washington aspects Post. Aspects of it, yeah. yeah. So uh, if you can. Uh, very quickly, can you explain how this paper and the way they released it, it's at a peer-reviewed website, as I understand it, but the peer review does not happen prior to publication. It sort of happens after publication, while it's published. Could, could you explain that, how this yeah, works? Yeah, it's a sure thing. It's an increasingly popular venue for publishing. Uh, it's becoming more widespread. It's known as uh, Open Review, mm -hmm. um, Open Access Journal. So basically, the peer review process plays out in public. Okay, the paper, you know, that is posted now is like the paper that you've submitted to a journal mm -hmm. um, before they've even selected reviewers to review it. Um, so the, the submitted paper goes up on the website and people can post comments. The reviewers post their reviews and it all plays out publicly. And, and a lot of people, and, and myself included, think that that's potentially a healthy thing. Um, anything that sort of can uh, increase the transparency of the way science is done at a time when science is under attack by vested interest trying to call into uh, question our motives. 
um, the, the, the more we can provide uh, transparency about the scientific process, because there isn't anything to hide, um, you know, some people see that as, as a good thing. And I think that in this case, that might be a reasonable way for, for Hansen colleagues to accomplish uh, the goal. Uh, I think their goal was really to generate a discussion about worst-case scenarios, because their feeling is that those worst-case scenarios are being left out of the discussion mm-hmm. uh, uh, with the you know in the IPCC report and elsewhere. And yet, if you talk to any you know uh, leading economist who studies sort of uh, the economics of climate change, uh, what they'll tell you is that worst-case scenarios are critical. They're what they, we call the tails of the distribution. If you look at all the things that can happen, um, think of it as like a bell-like uh, curve, uh, like the you know the normal distribution, um, where at the very ends that distribution is very thin. It's got a very thin tail, but that thin tail is where the biggest things happen. So you really want to know what's happening in that tail. Is there a point even 0.01 percent of you know mm-hmm. a 10 foot sea level rise over 50 years? If the probability is even that small, it might seem near zero not quite zero, it turns out that the magnitude, the cost of that happening is so large that when you multiply it, even by the low probability, it works out to be extremely expensive. And so when, yeah. if you do an economic cost-benefit analysis, um, you're going to focus on those very costly um, scenarios that lie in the tails of the distribution. I liken it to uh, why we purchase fire insurance for our homes. Uh, the typical person is never going to experience a home fire, a house fire. Mm-hmm. But just about everybody purchases fire insurance because they understand that even though it's an unlikely thing to happen, if it happened, it would be so devastating that it makes sense for me to to, to try to hedge against that possible outcome by investing yeah. in mitigation now. Think of this acting on climate change as a planetary insurance policy. And it, what one thing that is very clear from James Hansen, not just from this study, but also, uh, I believe it was last year, and this was the thing that really uh, kind of scared me, is that he said, we have, James Hansen, as I recall, said, we have to get off fossil fuels, we have to get off them completely and immediately, and uh, it, it is so important, he said, that he was willing to see a whole bunch of nuclear reactors built. This is a guy who clearly knows the dangers of, uh, you know, yeah. of nuclear power and saying that's how bad emissions from, from CO2 are right now, that he was willing to build a whole bunch of uh, nuclear plants just to get us to stop emitting uh, from fossil fuels. And, you know... Again, not not an industry guy. He's not a guy, say, you know, because he, he wants to build more nukes. He's saying, I know the dangers. That's how bad carbon dioxide is. So, um, boy, uh, people need to people need to pay attention. Let me leave you with one softball question, Michael Mann, before I go. Uh, deniers say, uh, as you as you mentioned, you know, that, oh, there is no consensus. These scientists are nothing but alarmists. These uh, these predictions are about little more than making money by the scientists for new studies. They just want to scare people so they'll get more money uh, to, you know, to to continue their studies. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because I hear this all the time and it seems so patently ridiculous. I mean, if a scientist wanted to make money, you would be a a denier because the uh, fossil fuel companies, they got all the money. They'll pay you a hell of a lot more, won't they, Michael Mann, if if you come out and say there is no global warming? 
Oh, of course. And, you know, what this is, you could call it projection. Um, it's when, you know, somebody accuses you of doing the very thing that they're guilty of in, in hope that they, you, that will deflect attention from the fact that they are doing it. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's sort of the politics of Karl Rove, um, the, uh, applied now to science, where you accuse scientists of doing the very thing that you are doing, you know, if you're a special interest group uh, funded by fossil fuel interest to poison the discussion and, uh, and, and, and engage in dissent, disingenuous uh, attacks on the science. So you accuse the scientists of doing that very thing. So you distract attention from the, the really, uh, you know, from your own uh, questionable tactics and motives. And um, we've seen that for some time. The reality is, it's just as you say, look, if it was about making money, um, I could become rich uh, denouncing, you know, the mm -hmm. hockey stick, right? Yep. <laughs> if I were willing to denounce my own work, which has played a critical um, role in the discussion over climate change, uh, no doubt um, that would be worth uh, a, a lot of money to uh, the very same special interest groups that have been trying to discredit uh, climate science for so long. Um, but, you know, ultimately, that's not what drives us. If we, if scientists, you know, if they wanted to make money with the mathematical tools that we learn, we could have all, you know, gone and worked on Wall Street and, and, and made a fair amount of money. Uh, the reason we went into science is because we loved doing science. We loved doing science from the earliest times that we can remember. We, you know, we're fascinated about the world from, you know, mm -hmm. our earliest memories and spent, have spent our, you know, our lives pursuing our, our, this intellectual curiosity and in how things work. And in the case of climate uh, science, it turns out that there's another side to it as well. It's really interesting science. It keeps us busy, intellectually busy, working on solving the remaining, uh, you know, problems that, that remain, the, the uh, pursuing the, the still, you know, uh, um, you know, pursuing all of the um, currently, you know, unresolved aspects of the science that keeps us busy. But it turns out that the science also happens to have some pretty deep societal implications. And it means that um, many of us, uh, myself included, have decided to try to both do the science that we love doing, um, and, and that keeps us grounded um, in the discussion, the fact that we still do science, and we publish, and we go to meetings, and we advise students and postdocs, and we keep, you know, we, we keep very close to the science itself. But we also, you know, uh, many of us feel that it's important to try to communicate what it is we know, because we understand that if we don't do that, we will leave a void that will be filled by those shrill uh, voices uh, of special interests who are looking to distract um, and, 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 and uh, mm -hmm. distract and confuse uh, the, the public and policymakers, and, and we can't allow that to happen. And in many cases, uh, distraction accomplished, unfortunately. Dr. Michael yep. E. Mann, Distinguished Professor and Director of the Earth si System Science Center at the Pennsylvania State University, uh, also a uh, science lover, uh, Michael Mann. He is not Michael Moore, the satirical filmmaker. He is not Michael Mann of Miami Vice. He is Michael E. Mann, and you can follow him on the Twitters at Michael E. Mann for more on this and other nonlinearities. Uh, Michael, we didn't even get to talk about the upcoming climate conference, but that just gives us an excuse to have you on uh, again soon before, uh, before they meet in Paris. Always great, that. always great talking with you, Michael. Thank you so much for all. Same here. Thank you. You bet. Bye-bye. Okay, that's it for today. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and, of course, 
to Dr. Michael E. Mann. Man, I love talking to him. He's fantastic. Uh, okay, we will be back with you. Same Brad time, same Brad channel tomorrow. If you missed any portion of the show today, you can download it a little bit later at bradblog.com or over at iTunes, where we hope you'll stop by. Give us a good review. Make it a little easier for everyone else to find the Bradcast as well. You can also drop me email anytime. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Or you can find me on the Twitters and the Facebooks at the Brad Blog. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.